of an Eye, Life Stories of Trauma, Loss, Awakenings, and Epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. Welcome to season three and the blink of an eye story as we land in Atlanta, Georgia. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to let you know about our listener survey. Please take a moment to fill it out. It should only take 10 minutes, and your doing so allows you to participate in the shaping of the production for what is working for our listeners and what you prefer. We've had amazing success hearing from many of you during the break. Thank you. I personally pour over as many of your comments as I can, and I love your feedback and personal stories, too. Keep them coming to louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. The link for the survey will also be in the show notes, wherever you listen, or on the website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com. Hmm. A lot of you have also been asking about Archer's opinion on the podcast and wondering if you might hear from him or even what happened to him. Well, before we continue with the story, I wanted to share something I wrote and recorded about just this so I could remember exactly how it happened. Basically, a response to your very questions. Here it is. From back in 2020, when I was preparing to launch the podcast. Oh, I should probably tell you that Archer is alive. A miracle. And almost as importantly, he has approved of my sharing all of this with you. So long as he said, it was my story, not his That was in 2019. Well, come on, I told him. I'll do my best, but that request, Archer, is virtually impossible. It is as much your story as it is mine. Well, we had some back and forth for over six months. He wasn't sure. Then he changed his mind and thought it might not be a good idea. I had already begun taking radio classes and writing. And then I woke up one morning in June and actually felt and saw the word surrender in my mind. I did, it's true. As emotionally invested as I was in moving forward, I knew it would be better if I just surrendered and let it go. I told Archer that night at supper. Archer looked right at me and said, Well, I've been giving it more thought too. No, Arch, I said. Please don't do that. 
We've gone back and forth so much. It's too hard on me, and I'm sure it's hard on you, too. It's not worth it for me to do anything that might put me sideways with you, baby. I glanced at my youngest son, who was still standing, feeding Archer, and I added, or with any of my children, it's just not worth that. Archer gave that some thought, and then he said, I think you should do the podcast, Ma. I do. With one contingency, I think you should interview other people. Interview them in segments as you go. Yep, the extraordinary people you have heard and will hear in this podcast. That was all Archer's idea. He said it will relieve some of the intensity, true, and the focus on just him. Probably. What I have wondered was if he also knew that their voices have filled in gaps of knowledge I did not have, have made the story more complex, more complete, and have provided me a path of deeper trauma healing. And as for the segments part, well, I have interviewed people in the same sequencing as the days, journal entries, text records, and Archer blog posts unfold. And I've heard from many of the friends and Archer's young friends after the interviews that the look back has been integrating for them as well, because so few of us take the time to look back to more deeply understand, or sometimes never to fully understand, but at least to acknowledge from a more grounded place something that changed our lives forever. (laughs) That kid is wise beyond his years. And the sequencing part, it's provided a sort of pacing and piecing things together at an appropriate digestion for my own level of healing. But you know what I've discovered that was a bit of a sweet surprise? As I reach out to each person to be interviewed, each is eager to participate. They all want to be part of this story, even though it has some rough and ugly parts. Even folks in the hospitals generously say yes. It's been five now, six years plus. It's sort of safe now. Amazing people. I feel more solid after each one. And I hope in some vicarious way, you do too. But you know what has also been unexpected and perhaps even sweeter? is that the interviews seem to provide healing for those who were strangers to us, but still very much a part of the story. Doctors, EMS workers, nurses. Many thought Archer had died. I've learned that people working in trauma settings 
rarely know what happens to the person they try to keep alive. They pour so much of their heart and soul into a tiny moment in time, but have no idea what then happens to a life. That's curious, isn't it? And there's a crazy thing I've learned over the years as a mediator, and that is that witnessing another's experience with them is very powerful and at the heart of being relational. Yes, I think it's fair to say we are all integrating and healing together. I'm glad you're on this journey with us. As I sat tightly with my hands pressed between my knees, keeping them warm in the freezing air of the small plane, and the sounds of the engine whirred loudly around us, I lay my cheek against the cold, small cockpit window and studied Archer intently. His eyes were closed, and he was strapped like a papoose on a board. I thought I had gotten used to the freezing cold air that Archer preferred and that kept his vitals steady. I was seat-belted tightly in the extra jump seat of the small medevac plane that carried us from New Jersey to Georgia. It was too loud to carry on any conversation. I felt the round rosary looped around my fingers and prayed. Please, take us to a place that will save Archer. Please, Lord. My eyes locked onto one of the EMT workers, a woman, fairly young, with a ruddy complexion and a round face, who glanced at me as she skillfully crawled around Archer's body, continually adjusting every tube and valve, keeping Archer alive. She managed a faint smile as she quickly returned to her serious work. Across from her was the EMT man I will never forget. The large, dark-skinned, strong, and direct man who saw the terror on Archer's face as one of the tubes became dislodged, and he told Archer, Hang on there, I got you. And he added, If you choke or anything gets in the way of your getting air, I will personally reach down your throat and yank out whatever fucking garbage is in the way so you can breathe, buddy. You got that? God, I love that guy. The sounds of the plane's engines almost drowned out any other thoughts. I watched that man who sat just a few feet away from me on the other side of Archer. He was intense, and he had a faint sweat over his upper lip. I knew both these EMTs were aware of the precarious situation and the life that we were transporting. I clutched my little round finger rosary tightly. It comforted me. Please, Mary, 
Let Archer feel your arms around him and calm him. As I stared out the window, the clouds were so beautiful. Amidst the loud hum of the motor, I felt Archer and I were floating. It was so peaceful and still out there. Archer's breathing was holding steady. Hold on, my darling. Hold tight. safe and sound. Thank you. The woman and I exchanged glances as she returned to Archer. I leaned over to touch Archer to see how he was, but was scolded to please not interfere in any way as she began unstrapping Archer quickly and changing out the oxygen tanks and pressure gauges. Thank you, young woman, whose name I may never know. Thank you, family and friends, for the energy field you created in communion with God and all the holy angels who transported us. Amen. Hello, Georgia. I breathed a sigh of relief as the wheels of our medevac jet taxied down a small runway in Atlanta, home of the Shepherd Center. I could feel the rise of excitement in my body for whatever it was that lay ahead for us. I felt rescued, home free. We had exhausted all the medical expertise and options Atlantic Care Hospital had to offer, and Archer had been discharged as a respiratory failure. Here we were, in a new city to us, far away from Atlantic Care, and far away from our home in Baltimore. They unloaded us from the medical jet onto a private runway reserved for cargo planes, and Archer was skillfully reloaded into an ambulance, with four medical crew and the driver helping as well. As I crawled in and crouched by his side, in the back of the tall, white, boxy truck, stacked with medical supplies and equipment, we whizzed through Atlanta, sirens on. I felt like Cruella DeVille in a getaway van. We were traveling fast. I had no idea what to expect. 
I had no idea what Archer was thinking. They had partially drugged him for the trip, but with enough awareness to give feedback about his state, sort of like twilight anesthesia. I knew it was wearing off, and I could only imagine the pain as the tubes jammed into his side flesh had been jostled many times, no matter how careful the team was. But he was alive, and we were headed towards the Shepherd Center, the world-renowned spinal cord injury center. That's all that mattered. They would know what to do. Things were going to get better. It was happening. In today's episode, you will hear from a community of angels. Well, you know what I mean. Really good people. From my college days at the University of Virginia, who were residents of Atlanta, who welcomed us to Atlanta with open arms. I want you to get to know them, as you will also hear from a couple of them throughout the season, as they were my Atlanta Angels. So take a deep breath. (sighs) Settle in. Here we go into a new chapter of our story. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2, Every Aspect, Every Molecule. Family and Friends Update Day 30 I can't believe it has been a month. I cannot explain the feeling of hopefulness I have. We are in a new beginning here at the Shepherd Center. I will call today, day one. September 4th, day 31, day two at Shepherd. Yesterday, as they briskly and carefully unloaded Archer, tightly secured like a papoose on a folding gurney, from the ambulance van and four different paramedics hurrying to secure the different monitors attached to the lines and hoses attached to Archer's body. We entered the Shepherd Center. We had come sight unseen. I felt like something was happening that I would never forget. It was neither excitement nor anticipation. It was more a reminder to take in every aspect, every molecule of this moment. As I got out of the front seat of the ambulance and looked around, The entrance was, well, an institutional entrance. No Shangri-La, no Oz, no pearly gates. On the area around the entrance were a number of older folks in wheelchairs. In fact, a quick glance around and everyone I saw was in a wheelchair. 
I had a quick flash to the days I would mediate at the VA hospital in Baltimore. No one was moving. Everyone was in a wheelchair, apparently waiting for a pickup. It was a harsh sight for me. I wanted to get away from it. It scared me. I was aware of a secondary twinge of shame. Shame I felt at the feeling of experiencing it as harsh and wanting to get away. I guess I must have been staring at this scene in a momentary daze, taking it in, and realized, oh, I had to run to catch up to the medical team who were well on their way through the glass doors and racing down the hallways to the acute intensive care unit with Archer on the gurney. And then the craziest thing happened. As I was jogging to keep up with them, I saw this huge sign on the wall in the corridor. Restoring hope. Rebuilding lives. I had to stop. I just stared at it. Hope. I then literally ran to catch up with the archer stretcher flying down the corridors. That message filled me with the potential of our rehab choice and the potential of the ultimate choice. To not hope or to hope. We are choosing the latter. And I was sharply aware that it will be a daily choice, one that may get challenged, one that I may not always believe in. But I know the feeling that floods my soul and very being when I am hopeful. And it's that feeling I want to breathe in and live in. And I want my family to live in hope. And I want Archer to breathe in hope and live in hope and to be sustained by it. I think that is what God offers to all of us if we believe. Hope. It's very powerful medicine. But it's nonetheless been a hard transition. Archer hasn't slept. He seemed unhappy and distant all afternoon after we arrived and throughout the night. All he wanted was pain medicine and sleeping aids. We both quickly learned that it's not Shepard's way to remove pain by using narcotics, Oh, which I'm so happy about. But it's also tough because Archer is in so very much pain from all the moves of the transport. And he's coming from a steady daily diet of narcotics since the lung surgery and the additional chest tubes a week ago. To ease the acute agony of the burning chest walls and the hoses jammed into his side, we consented to stronger drugs amidst the ongoing discernment 
of appropriate pain management for Archer. We negotiated with Archer and the trauma unit nurses, agreeing on just four days. But that turned into six, as the pain did not subside. We had been doing pretty well up to that point to limit the narcotics, not consenting to increasing the dose on the drip on many occasions, and instead seeking alternatives and ultimately terminating the fentanyl drip altogether, choosing to rely instead on other things, including the environment of our healing sanctuary, breathwork, and all the cards and the prayers that both distract and bring hope to Archer. It seems to me it's easy to dope people up in the name of pain relief or providing comfort, but it's tricky business with a slippery slope when you do so. More later about conversations I would overhear in the ICU with elderly patients. The irony of Billy's and my going from advocating vigilantly every day and at every shift change at the trauma ICU in New Jersey for limited narcotics, where we'd regularly say no to the, Archer, are you anxious? I'll bring you blah, blah, blah. Archer, are you in pain? We'll increase the fentanyl drip. Or, Archer, are you in more pain? I'll bring you oxycodone. And so on. All good people, all doing their best as they've been trained. But we wanted Archer to remain alert, and we didn't want Archer to have to spend his precious energy fighting. What we were learning quickly were all the secondary complications that come about as a result of the first line of treatment, including the use of narcotics for extended periods of time to treat pain. We saw in the first days how alternatives can be employed if you ask for them and that they were just as effective for pain management, albeit not as long-lasting. But if you didn't know that the use of certain pain meds leads to the need for higher dosages once the body gets used to the first dosages, oh, you can find yourself in a place you don't want to be with your loved one pleading for more dope. We could see so easily how mental and physical drug dependencies begin. Pain and pain relief. It's complicated. But in this new phase of transitioning to rehab here, I began to see my job abruptly changing within the first hour. While I didn't have to have those narcotics discussions over and over with nurses, I also was no longer going to be the one to take care of most of Archer's needs anymore. And not just I, but Billy, Paula, Pete, and Dewey, and our backup help, Aunt Elizabeth and Uncle Bill, Uncle Tripper, 
and Aunt Lillian. That reality was actually emotionally painful for me. Life was changing abruptly. It was tough love for both of us here at the Shepherd Center. Why, you might ask, at this wonderful, kind, and gentle place, is there tough love? Well, Archer now has a sip and puff to call a nurse himself and a mouth suction that has high volume air pressure within reach of his mouth so he can clear his own secretions. He doesn't like either as they are large, heavy coils clamped on either side of his bed and then positioned over his shoulders to his lips, truly in his face. And he really doesn't like the loud hissing of the air in the mouth suction. But it's now a necessary evil. The same sound had so bothered Archer in the trauma ICU that the nurses taught us how to turn the machine off and on so long as we would do the suctioning. Because Archer was alert and not drugged out, He now has mouth clicks for us every 20 or 30 minutes to turn the machine on to suction out the secretions. So our role was vital and totally abdicated out of necessity. But here, they want to instill his independence right away. And he doesn't like it or the mode of getting there. So this very loud hissing noise on the stiff coils as he stares out of his stiff neck collar and can only see these two hard plastic tentacles in his face are new modes he needs to learn and cope with. I'd liken our experience right now to what I could imagine is almost like a drug or alcohol rehab situation. We are weaning off. We know it's in the right direction, but it's hard and it's cold turkey. As Archer got very upset by the contraptions and Archer called me for help, I held his face in my hands, giving him a shield to all that was happening in his peripheral vision as his eyes darted wildly back and forth. I said steadily and as compassionately as I could with every ounce of my being, I know you don't like that sound. I don't like it either. Don't fight it because it will fight back. Instead, my baby, imagine, imagine it is something you love and that brings you peace and happiness. Close your eyes and imagine what it is that brings you peace and happiness. Now, incorporate that sound into that peace and happiness. That sound is peace and happiness. 
feel that, it's all going to be okay. You need that sound. He calmed and seemed okay thereafter. He didn't fight it the rest of the day. And he mastered it by the wee hours of the night. But even with a nurse call button via the huff and puff and the self-empowered mouth suction, Archer still clicked his mouth for me every 30 or 45 minutes through the night, last night asking me about certain sounds and beeps in the room, which were new and different. And because he can't see me in my fold-out chair bed, since his bed is too high and I'm across the room, I think he was just calling in pure reinforcement that I'm here. And I am. And I'm glad I was. So the last 36 hours have been a struggle to incorporate these many new ways in this new phase. But he and I both know the why. As much as we are having to be weaned from our newly formed but now old habits of the last month. And that is probably at the heart of why we are both really exhausted and have not yet slept. And I could only imagine the disconcerted feeling for Archer of being in a foreign place, wearing a neck brace, paralyzed, only able to stare up or straight ahead of sitting up, which he was not, and even feeling like he may have been suffocating or, God, drowning with all that in his face and no ability whatsoever to push it away or to even know what was around him. Oh, we were still keyed up in warrior mode. That's the only way I know how to describe it. So neither of us slept last night. But I remained hopeful that today would be brighter. And so it was overall. Brighter. As I opened the blinds in our room and the visits began about 7 a.m. And so did a lot of activity. I am learning from the 20 or so different experts who have seen, talked with, assessed, x-rayed Archer's lungs, the pulmonologist who expertly pulled out one of the right lung tubes while bloody, watery gunk squirted out of Archer's side from the pressure in his body, the team that redressed the remaining wound, the doctor who pulled the embedded stitches out of his left shoulder area from the pacemaker surgery, the nurse who emptied him to start bowel therapy, the physical therapist who performed the tedious Asia assessment 
over a few hours. The tech who sonogrammed his arms and legs to make sure no blood clots. The occupational therapist who assessed if and how Archer may be able to feed himself in the future. The speech therapist who taught us both about swallowing and who approved five sips of water, but only five, because of multiple swallows that need to become one hard swallow to progress. And only five sips after we learned how to brush his teeth and suction out the toothpaste and the water. The techs who came and measured him for a customized electric loner wheelchair. The nurses who got Arch into a huge harness sling from the ceiling crane and pulley into a wheelchair for four hours, punctuated every 30 minutes with one minute tilted back in the chair, which Archer commanded through a straw, which movement will also prevent the dreaded skin lesions for any quadriplegic, since Archer has no way of shifting his body on his own. <laughs> Imagine how long you can sit without moving. Not long. And as a result, you and I don't have skin lesions. The two chaplains who stopped by and who arranged a visit by a local Catholic priest from India, who later this afternoon blessed Archer with an anointing of the sick, that's usually when you're about to die, and brought communion. We said the Our Father together, and it was the first time in days that I saw Archer have enough energy to say, mouth, the whole prayer. He seemed to brighten at the Amen. I think the day began to turn the corner, honestly, after that. We were then visited by Mr. Apple, one of the founders, and by the medical director, whom I felt I knew from our phone conversations. And we were also visited by our case manager and by the housing ladies who showed me where I can stay and how one of my UVA sorority sisters had already been there with flowers and food and a visit by one of my other college housemates and sorority sisters who dropped off lunch and sundries and a member of the Shepherd Center board in his 70s who entered in a wheelchair and shared he had had a C6 accident many, many years ago. I think the reality hit Archer. That gentleman was C6 in a wheelchair. Archer is C5 that he could be in a wheelchair the rest of his life. 
Archer and I were surrounded by a community already, and the warmth felt wonderful as a sort of emery board for the sharp pain of our new reality. I had the chance to speak with two of my UVA sorority sisters, Allison Andrews Watson and Dee Dee Provosti Jasmine. Allison dropped off the flowers and food at the Shepherd apartment, and Dee Dee surprised me at the Shepherd Center when we arrived. We talked about their connections to Shepherd and how they and other friends of mine from college prepared for our arrival. You feel with um, that text that you got from Emily that you <laughs> that you were then duty bound. <laughs> what was that like for you? No, I wouldn't call it duty bound. It was more that feeling of, all right, this is my home, and Shepherd Spinal Center is this wonderful thing that my home has to offer, and I'm going to um, jump in both feet and and see what I can do just anything I can do the ironic or the most amazing thing is you know my father who has passed away 10 years ago when he retired from the practice of law he went into ministry at Shepherd and he would get up at about 4 45 every morning and go down to Shepherd Spinal Center seven days a week Christmas day Thanksgiving day didn't matter and he would feed um, quadriplegics and feed him breakfast and he was a quiet man so he never you know came in you know with a lot of volume about his faith and what was important to him but he said Allison it's amazing how when you develop and cultivate relationship with these people that are um, in a moment of crisis it just comes up he said inevitably I have an opportunity to share my faith um, with these folks. And so they called him Mr. Ed. And pretty soon friends of his heard that he was doing this. And they were also in that later stage of life where many of them were retired. And they said, you know, what is this thing you're doing? And he would tell them, well, pretty soon um, he had six or seven men that were all meeting down there, you know, 530 in the morning and getting their assignments and, and feeding, um, feeding breakfast to people that couldn't feed themselves. And uh, my understanding was that there were people that wouldn't let anyone feed them but my father. They were, I'm waiting on Mr. Ed. So it was just very interesting. And I think so often this is the way life works out, how things come full circle that I found myself in that sweet, sweet time with Archer. And so all of a sudden I heard that the two of you were going to be, I didn't know for sure it was just the two of you, but that you would be coming to Atlanta on a special flight and going to the Shepherd Center. And I hadn't talked to you at that point. And I mean, so I had no idea if it was, it, no, I think someone told me somehow that it was just you. And when I heard it was just you supporting Archer, um, that immediately made me think, who's going to take care of Louise? Because Louise is busy taking care of Archer. And so that's when I found out, I knew about what time you were getting there. And I went and got lunch for you. I don't know if you remember that. I do. And just showed up at the Shepherd Center looking for you. So I... that someone could provide you with something to eat. I'll never forget it, Dee Dee. 
a youth came in carrying one of those white plastic little bags with uh, warm food. And, and there you were in your unassuming, hi, here I am. You know, I knew you needed to eat. I, I just, that was the beginning of the angel walk. It was incredible. Yeah. It was incredible. Um, it is such a perhaps seemingly small thing to feed another person, but it's, it carries everything about humanity in that action. And then pretty quickly, you know, Mary Dillon, I guess through Madeline and Evie, um, had reached out, I guess, to me because she just thought I might have some kind of window on what you might need because she also was kind of like me. At that time, I had, um, my life was calm and I had a lot of time on my hands. Later, I dubbed these friends of mine the Atlanta Angels in an Archer blog. There was another angel who made his presence known to me that first day. Someone I had never met. The case manager came into our room in the Shepherd Center ICU, delivering mail. Mail? I was so surprised. It was a folded piece of eight and a half by eleven white paper. It was a copy of an email from John Bowders. September 3rd, 12.05 p.m. to Anna Elmer's M.D. Subject, please deliver to Archer Semft. Dear Archer, I am cheering you on from Missouri, and I was at Shepherd not long ago. I was injured in a car accident. You will work hard I know you will do well. I will be here for you. Your friend, John Bowders. John Bowders. I did not know the name. A former patient. How curious he would take the time to email Archer. What a kindness. I thought it must be a program Shepard had in place, like a buddy system. I'll have to try and remember his name. Amazing. And I felt hopeful. He can use his hands to write an email. So will Archer. Thank you, John Bowders. I know I'm back and forth and don't want to confuse you. Six plus years later. But I want to tell you that it was not until putting season three together, moving in segments, and finding many other original journal notes, as well as thousands of pages of text messages and a handful of emails, as I rarely looked at emails and did not have that ability on my phone in 2015, that I learned the connection of John Bowders to McDonough School, Archer School, in Baltimore. He was related to a teacher at McDonough. It was in an email I found just this week from Archer's doctor, 
that had been forwarded to me. And it read, on September 3rd, at midnight. Subject, Hello and Heads Up, New Patient, Archer Sempt, to Anna Elmers, M.D. Dear Dr. Elmers, I hope my message finds you doing well and having many successes with your shepherd patients. I am doing fantastic, driving myself to and from school every day, back to teaching and enjoying every minute. Thank you and your team for all you have done to get me back in the game. I just learned today that one of my sister's students, Archer Sempt, from Baltimore, Maryland, suffered an SCI during a swim in the Atlantic and will be transferred from intensive care to Shepherd today or tomorrow. I know Archer will receive superior treatment at Shepherd, and I hope that you will lead or be on his team. Archer is a fantastic kid, and I know his tenure at Shepherd will afford him every opportunity for a rewarding life. Thank you again for your loving, caring treatment of me and all your patience. Best wishes, John Bowders. You will hear much more from John Bowders this season, a man we came to love through correspondence, a man who also remained a sort of mystery to us for our entire stay at Shepherd. And now the piece is put together as I am telling you now six and a half years later, I also found another email, this one from me to Billy, as I had forwarded Dr. Elmer's email to him. And I said, this is from Archer's doc. I love her. We need to find out the teacher. It's crazy to me on one hand, how I have no memory whatsoever of that email or note. I suppose we could say it was not essential at the time. Trauma filters like that. But learning the connection now for the first time, (laughs) it's like a little epiphany. It just fills in another missing piece. Trauma healing is like that. Family and Friends Update Towards the end of this very busy day, as a carryover from yesterday, still not showered, but waiting for Billy to come later tonight, I think I had an out-of-body experience. I was sitting behind the physical therapist who was standing over Archer, doing various movements with Archer's hands and arms. I was listening and taking notes. He asked Archer what his PT, that stands for physical therapy, goals were. Goals? There was a lot of silence. Archer then mouthed, I'd like to be able to drink orange juice. The PT said, all right, orange juice. 
I smiled to myself. P.T. Goals. I'd never thought of it that way. Then the P.T. asked Archer what kinds of things he most liked doing. Archer mouthed, playing lacrosse, drawing, painting. Then Archer paused and added, cooking. He paused again and added, music. The PT asked him what was his favorite subject in school, and he mouthed, math. The PT repeated, okay, math. Then Archer mouthed, I just like school. Everything about school. The PT repeated that. All right, so you just like school and everything about it. The PT then asked again, So what is your goal for your rehab here? What do you want to be able to do when you leave here? And Archer mouthed, Draw and go back to McDonough. There was a long pause and Archer then asked his PT, do you think I'll ever be able to use my hands? I was stunned. The PT repeated with Archer mouth as he had with everything else previously shared. The PT said, I don't know. Only time will tell. I was behind them in a chair where Archer could not see me. Archer's question was just too raw for me. I felt the crack in the dike again as the hot tears rolled down my cheeks onto my scarf. And I felt my face writhe and twist in agony. It could not be expressed in sound, in agony for the harsh truth of Archer's realization of the reality that faced him, that he may never have the use of his hands. And then it was as if I was not in that chair. But I was looking down on the whole scene as if I were hovering above. I could see Archer and the PT working. And I could see me slumped in a chair about collapsed in grief. So that is how it's been today. Billy just arrived for a couple days. Thank you, Lord and Mary, for his safe trip. Pray for us. Pray for Archer's strength. Pray for his progress. 
and pray for a creative miracle. I have so much more to share, but I'm just too tuckered out. Sending love. That day felt like ages. I remember it like it was yesterday when I looked back to read my family and friends updates for the first time. You know, I could have never recalled all these details had I not written them down in real time as they were happening. I am grateful I did. I do remember on the plane ride this niggling thought that kept coming to me. Write it all down to have a record. I felt it would be important for Archer to know so he could go back. Funny, because it's I who is going back to make sense of it all. (laughs) Maybe you might find going back helps you make sense of a tragedy in your life too. I think it does help. But you know what? I don't think we have to make sense of everything. In fact, we might kill ourselves trying. I think it's enough to go back more as a witness, if you will, to something major that happened in our lives and the lives of others we care about. We don't need to know the details, all the details, to begin the deeper process of integration for healing. How looking back helps us find new pieces and discover new understandings and new perspectives we did not have before. And that too is part of the integration process and our healing. Being present though, present to ourselves, to our ongoing digestion in small parts when the time is right of the difficult chapters of our lives allows us to metabolize those losses into something new. And you know what else I realized back on this day in 2015, but I didn't quite have words for it then, but I do now. We had entered a different world at Shepherd the rehabilitation world, a world that talked with Archer, even when he couldn't talk, and saw him as a person with potential, not just a very sick patient to try to keep alive. They are two different worlds. I wonder how the two might inform each other You know what I mean? Emergency and medical personnel trying to keep someone, a body, alive. And also seeing the dignity of a human person, a full person, imagining their suffering and seeing their potential. And the rehabilitation personnel seeing a full human person with 
reverence for what their bodies have already been through. They're already gritting it out through brushes with death and loss of working parts of their body, yet choosing to live into the mystery of life. <laughs> oh, such different worldviews that could meet and be unified. I think that is part of a trauma-informed approach for medicine and for rehabilitation. I wonder what you think about that. I realize Archer and I had just begun the process of settling in at Shepherd, and because of relationships, we were already surrounded by a little community. It was so unexpected and so natural. It was a new beginning. And I was aware of feeling exhausted, but also hopeful and empowered and also on the verge of tears at any quiet moment in deep grief. And I realize and look back how much I was still in shock. It was all that. It's amazing to me how many things can coexist at once inside one person and even inside a physical space and one moment in time. I like to think of it that way. Maybe you do too. Yeah, as we heal and move forward, we can welcome it all. Because it all served a purpose. It all belongs. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Thank you for tuning in to the Blink of an Eye story. You may continue listening next Wednesday to the trauma healing learning that accompanies this story at Trauma Healing Learning 2, making transitions of care from hospitals to rehabilitation easier, which features unheard excerpts from my interview and conversation with Tara Grimes of the Shepherd Center. There are almost 40,000 listens now to the podcast. Please remember to follow us by hitting the follow or subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for following, subscribing, and telling your friends about Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation. I See That is a multidisciplinary nonprofit that provides tangible support, trauma healing education, and advocacy for those experiencing crisis or trauma. To donate, please visit www.icthat.org. That's the letters I-C-T-H-A-T dot O-R-G.